Today's teaching text comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Embarrassment is an interesting phenomenon in our world. It's something that we can experience, and often it's a mixture of, of several different emotions. There can be you know, feelings of shame, there can be anger mixed in, there can be fear. You know, sometimes there can be, you know, on either side, like a sensation of either wanting to be smaller and unseen, um, you know, to get away, or, or wanting to rise up and to take attention and, and correct someone's assumption about you. We can kind of be on either end. You sometimes hear people utter what I think is a lie, but many of us have even tried it on ourselves. I don't care about what other people think about me. But if we didn't care, we probably wouldn't even bother saying that. Uh, and of course, I, we can come to healthier places in our, our self-image and our insecurity, 
But on some level, if we're honest, uh, almost all of us care uh, and, and care deeply about what someone else thinks about us, especially depending on, on who they are. And that's beautiful. That's not to be d- d- dismissed. It means that we are built for a relationship, that this is a relational world. So of course, we care deeply about uh, what others think of us. So obviously, we can go too far with that and and you know, obsessing about what other people think or trying always to curate our, our perceived image in the world, but there's no way around it. It hurts to be slighted. It hurts to be mocked, to be left out, to be quietly thought less of, to be misunderstood, to be labeled and dismissed, to be openly ridiculed. These are deeply painful parts of the human experience. And, and, uh, And many of us feel something like that when it comes to to our faith. Uh, Many of us would feel shy or embarrassed for certain people in our life to find out that we went to church last weekend or that we're a Christian or a follower of Jesus. When I was a kid, I I mostly thought this embarrassment was on me because I wasn't bold enough. That was kind of like the youth group mantra, um, you know, that you just have to be courageous in your faith. Or, Or I thought that maybe being... Christian just wasn't cool and, and enough, and, and maybe you know the enemy of our souls was, was always going to have you know kind of sway in popular culture, and it was going to be an uphill fight. But as my life has gone on, gone on I, I've seen it actually uh, you know almost be worse when Christianity uh, w- was trying to become cool or, or, or was cool in, in a place. When, when Christianity was in a place of power and influence, it wasn't like the embarrassment went away. We had a discussion with our our staff team this week about whether it felt harder to publicly identify with Jesus now or before the last election and the pandemic and and some of the racial reckoning that's happened uh, in America. And there there was honestly different opinions around the room, but no one said that it was exactly the same. Many of you don't have to search you know, very long for this. You can feel a sense of embarrassment rising in you, maybe even right now, if you think about someone in your building or, 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 or some, uh, you know, some certain coworker or a particular friend or a particular family member finding out that you're a follower of Jesus, what would that be like? And many of us right away, we want to clarify, oh, I'm not that type of Christian or, or whatever, some other type of qualifier. And those things may actually change uh, from place to place or community to community. Why is that? Why this sense of embarrassment? I remember reading a few paragraphs from Francis Spufford's book, uh, An Englishman, a few years back on on that sense of of embarrassment um, over our faith, what it can feel like that it means to be known as a Christian. And as I read it, I set up and I was like, yes, this is, I felt this. And and then I was like, it's either really like this or I I begin to think that it's like this and that affects me. Listen to what he says. It's it's a, a... Kind of a long um, section, but I think that it's worth it. I think many of you will relate to this. That being a Christian um, means we believe in a load of Bronze Age absurdities. 
It means that we don't believe in dinosaurs. It means that we're dogmatic, that we're self-righteous, that we fetishize pain and suffering, that we advocate wishy-washy niceness, that we promise the oppressed pie in the sky when they die, that we're bleeding hearts who don't understand the wealth-creating powers of the market, that we're too stupid to understand the irrationality of our creeds, that we build absurdly complex intellectual structures full of meaningless distinctions on marshmallow foundations of a fantasy, that we're upholding the nuclear family with all its micro-tyrannies and imprisoning stereotypes, that we're the hair-shirted enemies of the ordinary family pleasures of parenthood, shopping, sex, and car ownership, that we're savagely judgmental, that we'd free murderers to kill again. That we think everyone who disagrees with us is going to roast for all eternity. Had enough yet? (laughs) He goes on. That we're infantile and can't do without our illusory daddy in the sky. That we destroy the spontaneity and hopefulness of children by implanting a sick mythology in young minds. That we oppose freedom, human rights, gay rights, individual moral autonomy, and a woman's right to choose. Stem cell research, the use of condoms and fighting AIDS, the teaching of evolutionary biology, modernity, progress. That we think everyone should be cowering before authority. That we sanctify the idea of hierarchy. Hierarchy. That we're the villains in history on the wrong side of every struggle for human liberty. That if we sometimes seem to have been on the right side of one of said struggles, we weren't really. Or the struggle wasn't about what it appeared to be about. Or we didn't really do the right thing for the reasons we said we did. That we've probably provided pious cover stories for racism, imperialism, wars of conquest, slavery, exploitation. That we've manufactured imaginary causes for real people to kill each other that we're stuck in the past, that we destroy tribal cultures, that we think the world's going to end, that we want to help the world to end, that we want to teach people to hate their own natural selves, that we want people to be afraid, that we want people to be ashamed, that we have an imaginary friend that we believe is a sky in a sky pixie, and we prostrate ourselves before a God who has the reality status of Santa Claus, that we prefer scripture to novels, preaching to storytelling, certainty to doubt, faith to reason, law to mercy, primary colors to shades, censorship to debate, silence to eloquence, death to life. He doesn't leave much out, does he? I read that and I thought, I feel that. Even if some of it doesn't feel fair or it's a caricature or over-exaggeration, you hear that, you probably... At some points, you're like, that's not me. I believe in dinosaurs or, or oh, you know, that one stings a little bit or, or we want to explain and, and nuance and of course. But that's why it's hard. That's why we feel the embarrassment is either this is a sense of our perception or we think that people perceive us this way. So what do you do when something essential to your life to your heart, something that has transformed you, that is essential to your future, to your community, seems impossible, offensive, and irrelevant. These are real challenges in our world. And I think there are some unique aspects to our moment in America that may seem to amplify these challenges. Um, You know, you think about the way Christ 
you know, is misrepresented in our, in our wider culture in certain ways. You think about the way certain groups of faith get tied to political parties or, or um, listen, let's get real. Last, we've had people leave our church this year over us not saying enough about a social or political issue that they care a lot about. And we've had others who left because they thought we were bringing up that very same thing too much and it bothered them. And so it's both ends of the spectrum. I remember talking to my mom, kind of rather painful conversations. Some of you will relate to these types of conversations over the last year, but talking with her and saying with some some heartache um, that certain aspects of the American church and the way we represent our faith make my job of presenting Jesus and the invitation of Jesus much more difficult, that it feels much more challenging in this moment. But I am, I am grateful that we are not the first generation to deal with this. In fact, the story that we just heard is only four chapters into the book of Acts. It's just after the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church, and they immediately run into these types of challenges, uh, the challenges of the good news of Jesus not being seen as good news at all. As a matter of fact, being seen as impossible, offensive, and irrelevant. This story in Acts 4, it picks up after Peter and John um, prayed for a man who was crippled, couldn't walk, um, to receive healing, and this man did. He, he was miraculously healed. So just so you're really familiar with where we are, they're right in the middle of all the incredible things that we hear mentioned at the end of Acts 2 about how the believers were living as this reconciled and reconciling community after the Holy Spirit fell and the church was born, and many were being added to their numbers on a daily basis, being drawn into the life and love and story of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is the rhythm of their life. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone uh, who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So one of those times on their way to the temple, Peter and John encountered this crippled man begging for help. They, they, they pray for him and for healing in Jesus' name. So think about this. What's pouring out? Salvation. People are being forgiven and brought into union with God, healing, radical generosity, incredible joy, sincere and glad hearts. They're sharing meals. They're sharing friendship. They're taking care of, of of their neighbors. These are some of the promised signs of the kingdom of God that go back to Israel's prophets. Isaiah highlights so many of these. These signs of the kingdom were breaking out, but also the trouble immediately starts breaking out. Our story began, the priests and captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail till the next day impossible, offensive, irrelevant. They come up to them, uh, to them, uh, and, and, and just 
as then as as now, they are greatly disturbed. For them, for their view of the world, for all that they knew, this was absolutely impossible. Proclaiming some new type of life in Jesus' name and, and proclaiming resurrection, you know, in, in Jesus' name. There were people who had quite a bit to lose if this message began to take hold. And there are people in our world in a similar place. But where we began is it just didn't make sense to them as a possibility. Whatever they were proclaiming just didn't, didn't calculate. It didn't add up. It didn't, seem, it didn't seem possible. They had no framework for what was happening, especially the Sadducees who were in power. That They didn't believe in a resurrection. That was the big difference in their day between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They didn't believe in a resurrection at all. And, and it's a very sensible thing not to believe in because almost everyone who dies just stays dead. And so you know the, the weight of facts, you would say, seemed to be entirely on their side unless something new was breaking into the world. And these Sadducees controlled the temple police. So we're not going to spend too much time here, but I'm going to give you something from N.T. Wright, one of the greatest living New Testament theologians on this, because I think it sums it up really well. And we'll keep moving. It cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. Resurrection for them, if you were a Pharisee and you believed in it, was something that might happen for all on that great future occasion when God brought history to an end and a whole new world and, the, and, and a whole new world was renewed. It will not do, therefore, to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so unable to come to terms with it, that they projected their scattered hopes onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with their cruelly broken dream. That has an initial and apparent psychological plausibility to 20th century people, but it will not work as serious first century history. There were lots of other messianic and similar movements in the Jewish world, roughly contemporary with Jesus. There were many situations in which a messianic leader died a violent death at the hands of authorities. In not one single case do we see the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. In the Jewish worldview, an individual could not be resurrected in the middle of history and history just continue going. It was not something that was possible in their worldview. So Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by authorities had only two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that your original leader had been resurrected was not an option. Unless, of course, he was. Impossible. The message they were proclaiming was impossible. The message we are proclaiming still is impossible. And there's no reason to proclaim an impossible message unless it's happening. It has happened and it is happening. So the authorities objected and they used their power to object because it was impossible. Even though they had some things that were very difficult to deny happening right in front of them, they said it was impossible. But they also, and this is right on the heels, is they, they, they thought it was offensive. They asked Peter and John, you can see it's sort of like the contempt in, in even how they question them. They asked Peter and John, how, how did you do the thing with healing the guy? And they respond, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, ah, things getting tense, but whom God raised from the dead. That is, this man, uh, 
It is, it, but, but, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is offensive in its original hearing in so many ways. You missed what Jesus was about. You joined in in having him killed. You haven't read your own scriptures right. You've missed all the signs that were pointing to him. And there's no other way that you can step into what God's bringing in the way of renewal and redemption in the world if you try to go around this person, Jesus. It was offensive then. It is still offensive. Followers of Jesus are saying there, there is something essential in the revelation of God through the person of Jesus that cannot be found anywhere else. No other God in world religion is coming as a person and dying for our sins and for his enemies, no less. No other God is, is showing the glory and power and majesty of God by giving away power and demonstrating weakness, this upside down way that the kingdom of God works. And it's, it's offensive. No other God is offering this type of forgiveness. And many of us want to say, I don't need forgiveness. And, and yet there is something innate in our hearts that keeps coming. Coming up and saying, actually, we do. We need reconciliation. We need to be re-embraced, even in our moments of worst, worst failure. There's no other God offering this type of forgiveness and then forgiveness for the sake of union, embrace, family relationship. No other God is asserting the very nature of God is so relational, so full of love, that God would cross any barrier to apprehend us with that love. But that very same God will also let you say no to him. Lots of people don't have much trouble with Jesus until you say that Jesus is the only way. And then it gets really offensive. But if Jesus is God and Jesus died on the cross in this way that we see described in the Gospels and then rose from the dead, First of all, if that really happened, then we're sort of past the negotiate with this person type of mentality. But also, if that really happened and there was some other way that it could have happened, there was some other side road to salvation that you could take and not go through Jesus, then that makes what Jesus did absurd at best and cruel at worst. Absurd and cruel if Jesus goes through what Jesus goes through to win our redemption and there's some other way up the mountain. <laughs> but actually, we've just mixed up the metaphor because we're not climbing a mountain. We're needing to be embraced by a person. On top of that, love. If love is not just sentimentality, and a lot of love that we talk about in our world is just sentimentality. It's just, it's just a general positive feeling towards the other person. But the biblical vision of love is so much more substantial and robust and lasting and actually saving. But love that's not just sentimentality always involves limiting choices. You, 
We get it in our human relationships pretty quickly, but you choose your spouse to the exclusion of all the others. And if you don't, the relationship begins to break down. You spend time with your kids and you can't be somewhere else attending to other responsibilities exactly the same time or it begins to fragment. You take a trip with your three best friends and not everyone comes along. Not everyone shares that same relational experience. You start a certain career and for a time you cannot be in another career. You're limiting your choices. And there is no one who truly wants to come to Christ and surrender to the love of Christ who's not permitted to. It's open to absolutely everyone. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, every age of human history, every culture, everyone is welcome. But we aren't permitted to invent some alternative that gives us the same thing in another way. Because a relationship is a relationship. It's not just a worldview. Over and over again, we see we need an embrace, not just some new set of ideas. We need a friend, not just a philosophy. We need a savior, not just a pathway. In America, we often absorb this deadly lie that freedom means keeping all your options open. And that's actually disintegration. We say things like live your truth while ignoring that we're actually enthroning the self and putting our preferences in the place of greatest power. Now, sometimes we say live your truth and what we really mean is be honest about your experience. And that's totally okay. But when you say something like live your truth, you're you're missing that that's essentially enthroning the self and putting each individual in the place where where what they want, their preferences are, are paramount. And that leads to, if you just follow it out even a little bit logically, massive conflict with the very next person next to you living their truth. When those truths are in conflict, we think humility in our world is doubting that you can ever really know something. And anyone who claims to ever really know something is, is, is seen as, as, as giving a prideful statement. But humility does know that we need love, that we need to know love, that we don't have everything in ourselves. When we look at ourselves in our world, we intuit that we need a redemptive type of love. It's why it keeps coming up in every, uh, every generation's stories. We keep telling the same idea. And so they say, as offensive as it is, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now this doesn't mean that there's no mystery. It doesn't mean that we have a lock on all the truth. It means that mystery has been unfolding since the beginning and we are seeing glimpses all along the way and there are still so much more to be discovered. It also doesn't mean that you can't deconstruct younger versions of your faith and, and, and throw out things that were, that were, that were lies or that, that weren't true or that were never actually working. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't deconstruct the institution that you grew up in. But when we peel the layers back, and our world needs this right now, when we peel the layers back and I end up with an empowered me, but a distorted Jesus, I lose something critical. If my deconstruction leaves me in the center, then I did it wrong. 
If it's just me and even my favorite podcast at the center and we lose Jesus, we lose something irreplaceable. So if we deconstruct and we peel back the layers and we end with an Americanized moral therapeutic deism, or to put it another way, we peel back the layers and we end with Jesus as optional life coach and optional therapist instead of the fiery-eyed, wildly loving Jewish Messiah Jesus of actual history who became king through death, then we lose what is truly life. Deconstruct and decolonize your faith, but don't lose Jesus. Because as you rebuild, we need Christ as our guide. My dad used to say, you know, it takes unskilled workers one day to tear down what it took a year skilled workers to build. And what he was trying to say was deconstruction can be difficult and it is important. But building something that lasts, that's substantial, that has stood the test of time takes something, something different. And I think it takes resources beyond ourselves. I think it takes the divine resources of God's love and the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us to look at the the last of their responses. We've covered impossible and offensive, but there's also a move to make the gospel irrelevant in the story. You look at from the leaders, um, what they say, what are we gonna do with these men, they ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them uh, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Think about what they're saying here. We know something has happened, but we just don't have time for this. This doesn't fit into our power structures. This this doesn't keep us on top. In fact, it's a threat to our power and influence. This doesn't make us, us money. This reduces our impact. And so this thing must be marginalized. It's not exactly the same specific set of context, but the same thing happens in our world. And this and, and the reality of the message of the gospel gets pushed to the side because it's not terrible good for, uh, for, for certain types of marketing or for certain types of views of humanity, for certain power structures. The person and message of Jesus has always been called impossible, offensive, and irrelevant. But the question is, is it really life? Is this really the way God is repairing the world through relationships? through the life, death, and resurrection of an actual person in history, but whom you can experience now by the power of that very same person's spirit. That the way God is repairing the world is that anyone who comes to know and believe and be filled with this life has a full share in this kingdom. There's the forgiveness and then there's the union. I want you to notice two quick things in the apostles' life who were who brought before um, you know, these authorities and, and, and the community that they were in. This is, I think, 
if we want to get really practical in these last few minutes, what makes the difference? And the first is that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. That relational connection was strong. This is what the authorities marveled over. They were unschooled and ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. Always, this has been a movement of ordinary people made extraordinary by God's presence and love. I want to say that one more time. Jesus' movement has always been a movement of ordinary people made extraordinary by by God's presence and love. Being with Jesus is different than having right ideas about God in your head. Being with Jesus is different than having right ideas about God in in your head. And this is part of our challenge in this moment in the American church. I want to give you Dallas Willard because I think he prophetically saw this and, and, and spoke to this so well. Here's what he says. We've been through a period when the dominant theology simply had nothing to do with discipleship. So when you hear that word, you you know we mean intimate relational change, the change that comes through friendship and connection and union. It had to do with proper belief. Let's take that in. We've been through a period when the dominant theology simply had nothing to do with discipleship. It had to do with proper belief, with with God seeing to it that individuals didn't go to the bad place, but to the good place. But that developed in such a way that the predominant thought is that a person can have the worst character possible and still get into the good place if he believed the right thing. This disconnection became increasingly burdensome to the church and we, until we came to the point that, is, as is widely discussed, there is not a clear difference between those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. They had been with Jesus. Their lives had been shaped by that. And I want to tell you, Pentecost means that by the falling of the Holy Spirit, you as well can be with Jesus. You can be in this relational process of transformation that is our faith. The second thing is after the trouble, they went back to their community because they needed the support. They weren't doing this on their own. And and I just want to give you the last part of what we get a little glimpse into their prayer meeting. In the last part of the prayer meeting, they, they pray this. Now, Lord, consider the threats. So basically, Lord, Consider the threats, all that we're facing, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So we know we're in a mess. We know we're going to continue to be in a mess. Would you give us tremendous boldness to live the reality of union with Jesus publicly? Would you continue to do the very same thing that just got us in trouble and even do it more? And would you just be with us (laughs) as you do that? And after they play, prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, all these Christians had been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Here we are at Acts 4 and we have another example of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is something that I think we're invited to pray for all the time in our life, a continual, perpetual, perpetual never-ending filling of the Holy Spirit. Not that we're starting from scratch or that God abandons us in between those prayers, but that we want to perpetually be filled up with the life and love of God. The places they were were shaken and their lives were filled. 
Their places were shaken, their lives were filled. Don't try to live, please, the impossible, offensive, irrelevant gospel of Jesus without the Holy Spirit shaking your places and filling your life. It's absolutely impossible. It's not worth it. It's exhausting, it's embarrassing, and it will crush you. Do not live this life without the Holy Spirit shaking your spaces and filling your life. Don't try to live this world healing, love offering, dignity restoring, death to life gospel on your own resources. It absolutely won't work. The platitudes of our culture sound tremendously sweet. They offer freedom through options, but they're hollow of life. Jesus' offer of life, on the other hand, may seem initially limiting or even offensive, and yet it is the way to expansive love. Be shaken and be filled with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. If you want to peel the how right off of this story, I'll give it to you in just a couple of sentences. Ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Begin acknowledging that you are not the boss of your own life, first and foremost. That you want to live by the power of God's love, not just your own resources and willpower, and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. The second really practical thing from this story is have a group that you're expecting God with. Have a group of people that when your faith is down, they're they're gonna lift you up. And when their faith is down, you can remind them of who they truly are. But have a group of people that are regularly meeting with you in your life and you're expecting God together. Also, have a group of people in your life that you can process the real trouble of your life with. They went immediately back after getting out of this this jam back to their community and they expected God together and they processed the trouble together. These are really practical steps that we can take as well. If you and just your family unit are doing this thing on your own, you're headed for trouble. You're headed for uh, a, a shipwreck. Another really practical thing is no matter where you are, it's not too late for you. A couple of details in the story said the man who was healed was 40 years old. And that doesn't mean, you know, if you're 45, you've you've, you've aged out of the process. It's essentially saying, even though so much of his life had already occurred, being brought into this story, being swept into the grace and mercy and transformation of the love of Jesus, he was not, there was no place that was too far. It's not too late for you. The last thing I'll say is be bold. Very practically, the embarrassment is real. The the conversations are complicated. The the, the ethics of of how to live as a follower of Jesus in 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 the specific decisions of our everyday life. What do you do about the internet? What do you do about sexuality? What do you do about your money? What do you do about politics? What do you do about your extended family? What do you do about about, this place we are in the world and all the riches that are are before us and yet still some of us are in profound need? How, How do we live? All those things are there, and yet the call is to be bold. Honestly, people are bold about so much less in the world. We can be bold about the transforming, dignity-bringing, justice-bringing, mercy-bringing love of God, the salvation that is found in Jesus. I put the question Peter and John asked to you as we close. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard.
Church, our, our beliefs may sound embarrassing, and there may be cultural narratives that make them feel embarrassing, but at the heart is this relational connection to a God who has made a relational world and who's come to extravagant lengths, his life, death, and resurrection to bring us into the family. And there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Let us cling to Jesus. Let us invite Jesus in. Let us be filled with his spirit. Let us be bold. Heavenly Father, I pray you would strengthen us in the places that we are weak, that you would give us courage. You would put your courage into us, into our hearts and minds. I pray that before we do anything in public, we would learn uh, the process of loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we would know we're always going to have failures and weakness, and so we wouldn't wait to be honest with our neighbors about what our life really is, and that you would carry us. You would help us connect to uh, others around us to expect you with and to, to, to cling to one another, to process the troubles of our life. That we would pray, God, to be filled with your spirit on the daily, that we would be courageous and bold. No matter where we are, it is not too late. I pray you would lead us right now by your Holy Spirit. Minister to your people through your word in these moments, through your presence in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.